Welcome to the Junkyard Pod, a Cleveland Cavaliers podcast. I'm your host, Tony Pesta, along with my co-host, Jackson Flickinger, and today's a big one. Not only is it the first episode under our new name, but we also have our friend Corey of the It's Cavalier podcast. Welcome to the show, Corey. Thanks for having us, guys. And by us, I mean me. <laughs> I, I just, I'm used to you know incorporating Mac into my daily life, yeah. so it's a little weird without him. So we'll see how I roll without a host. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think you'll be able to hold up. And and we'll, we plan on having Mac on here soon, too, whenever we can get everything scheduled out. But today should be a fun one. And by fun, I mean we're going to be talking about the Cavs offense. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, it feels like every time the Cavs lose a game, you can basically point to two factors. And it's a lack of three-point shooting and a lack of bench production in terms of scoring. And I don't think those two things are mutually exclusive. I think they pretty much play off each other. Whenever the Cavs feel like they're being held back or limited, it's almost always because of their offense. Uh, when you look at it, they actually shoot the 12th best three-point percentage, but they're 23rd in three-point attempts and just 19th in three-pointers made. They rank ninth overall in offensive rating, which I think makes it seem like it's better than it really is. But I want to start off by asking Corey, and then we'll flip it over to Jackson. How confident are you in the Cavs offense as a whole? What a multifaceted question. If you asked me about the starting lineup of the Cavs, I'd say I'd feel semi-confident in that being that, you know, they're going to be the ones who shoot. It's once uh, JB points to the bench and brings up the first line of reserves is when the shot attempts become like a quagmire where you don't even know necessarily what's going to come out of night to night. There's not one player on the bench right now that you can look at and know exactly what you're going to get out of them. They're all such high turbulent players. They're just up and down. It feels like night to night. You have one night where Karis LeVert feels like he is going to definitely be in the Cleveland long-term plans with the way he plays. The next minute, he is just ice cold, and everyone on Twitter is calling for him to have been traded weeks ago. Even though I personally have grown to love Karis LeVert over time, and Good I think that's what I'm talking about. I, <laughs> I got another I, Karis LeVert supporter here with me. <laughs> I mean, Karis LeVert, I mean, that – that uh, piece by Spencer Davies was probably one of my favorite articles I've read on the Cavs all year because no one really admires that Karis LeVert went from being this guy who's just known as like a Jordan Clarkson type player who just wants to get his own shot, has tunnel vision, doesn't care for anyone else around him, to having a, a sneaky good vision and being a good lengthy rebounder for his position. I really enjoy what he brings to the table. And I would probably say he's my favorite player to come off the bench for the Cavs this year outside of my lord and savior, Kevin Love, who has departed me into uh, another place. But overall, long-winded answer, uh, no, I am not very positive right now about the Cavaliers' offense <laughs> as a whole. Jackson, how, how do you feel about the Cavs' uh, offense? So one of the things that I kind of want to push back on a little bit with, like, Karis LeVert, uh, not to – I don't want to derail the whole thing and make this – We got him going already. <laughs> oh, no. What have I done? But it's like <laughs> – the thing we'll, is, like, we'll have time to talk about has he, that in depth. Has he actually changed his game, though? Like, if you look at like where he's getting his shots at, he's he's basically getting all of his shots at the same places. Like, you know, he's taking most of it in, in, in the mid range. He's shooting a little bit higher percentage from three than like normal, but not significantly. So I think he does he does kind of buy in on the defensive end, like. The Cavs do play decent defense when he's out there. He's erratic with the closeouts, uh, which cost them a couple times all and a couple times before. But it's it's like I don't know. Like I I think he's kind of the same player, just doing maybe a little bit less of what he always does. And I think that's they just don't really need what he's providing. Uh, anyways, so I don't. <laughs> I guess, I guess, I guess, like, I don't really buy he's really changed his game all that much. He just kind of changed his volume, if that makes sense. Yeah, that does make sense. It's just, and it's funny, I've never met a player more infatuated with a mid range jumper that has a terrible mid range jumper percentage. He won't let it go. He just, he acts like he's like DeMar DeRozan <laughs> reincarnated with his yeah. efficiency, and it's the exact opposite. Well, <laughs> Like the problem is so like what he does best is like the high pick and rolls and he's really is good at getting the bigs involved and he's really good at 
getting them the ball in positions that they can succeed in. It's just when the defense just completely collapses, he where his only recourse is to shoot, and he's just an awful mid-range shooter. He's shooting 31% on mid-range shots, which is unbelievably low <laughs> for someone who shoots it as much as he does. Like he's shooting 35% from three. Like it's he's not he shouldn't be this bad of a shooter. So that's where it's that's where the frustration happens where you see the things that he can do well, it's just the things that he can't do well. He refused he refuses to stop doing them. So it's like a miniature version of what the Lakers' problem with Russell Westbrook was, except like Russell we- uh Karis LeVert isn't as integral to the success of mm-hmm. the Cavs as Russell Westbrook needed to be in order for that Lakers team to actually come to what they were hoping. But at the same time, I feel like with Karis LeVert, the weirdest part that you could argue is that because we're having him shoot less, there could be a case that it's actually just making him worse because I feel like he's a volume shooter. So we're taking away his major like asset he brings to the court and telling him, hey, I know you usually get hot around like your fourth shot, but how about you just take four shots a game and we see what we get out of you? And that's the yeah. Karis LeVert conundrum. Yeah, it's I think- tough. Oh, sorry. I was just oh. going to jump in and say, I think if, if we're going to talk about LeVert changing his game, that's where I would give him the most credit is while – Yes, those mid-range shots are very frustrating. I do think he has made at least some sort of sacrifice in terms of not being that volume guy and trying to buy in defensively. And also, I might get cooked for this, but there have been some games where I'm watching, I'm like, man, Karis LeVert looks pretty good tonight. And then I'll check the box score, and I'm like, Jesus Christ, he's like one for eight. But he's playing good defense, and he'll have like six assists, one turnover. So I'm like, he's trying. You know, If he could cut out the mid-range shot or just hit a shot, from anywhere on the court it would make a big difference and and but i mean i think he has tried much harder than a lot of other people in his position would have to fit in maybe it's not working out but i give him credit for attempting to buy in the way he has and that is a good point i think one of the things that we get lost on uh when we're like criticizing a lot of these players is that they're all really buying in like you know Isaac is really buying in. Karis is really buying in. Jetty has gotten really inconsistent minutes. And I would have a hard time buying in if I was in that position where I felt like I should be playing and I go, you know, games without playing or put in for just spot minutes. And, but everyone's really bought in. So that's really a credit to JB. It's just these guys don't fit around the core four. And that's basically all of the issues. It's like Karis Levert's best with the ball in this hand. You know who else is best with the ball? in their um, hands, Darius and um, Donovan. So it's just like, same with like Rubio, Isaac Okoro is still trying to find a, a role really. So it's just, it's just really tough. Yeah. I think when we talk about the Cavs offense, it's funny because entering the season, I think most people's concern was whether or not they were going to be able to hold up defensively with Donovan Mitchell and Garland in the backcourt. And now it's less about that because I think those two have been more than fine on defense. Now the question is, are those two going to be able to carry the offense enough because of just the the limited spacing and the limited scoring they've had around them? And it's it's just crazy because I think most teams are, across the NBA have lineups where they can put four, sometimes even five shooters out there. And I think the Cavs might have two shooters on the entire roster. Because, like It's just Mitchell and Garland who are – going to actually go out there and shoot with volume and some sort of efficiency. You have Jetty who, who is, you know, he's not afraid to shoot it, but he's a little inconsistent <laughs> outside of that. It's like Dean Wade. He can, he's, he's been efficient, but he's not really shooting the ball, which is a problem. Obviously Levert, I would say kind of in the middle there, it's like he's had a somewhat efficient year, but he's just basically average and he's still not at the type of guy you want shooting. Akoro has made huge leaps, but he's not the guy you want shooting. It's like the Cavs might actually have two shooters on the roster now that Love's gone, and that's a little concerning. But in, in terms of my confidence, I'm confident in Donnie and Garland. I'm happy with the development of Evan Mobley. But, yeah, I mean, it's a little bit of a dark picture here when you look at the full roster and what they can do on offense. Yeah, one of those things um, – so there's only – Three Cavs shooting above thirty six percent from three, uh, which is um, league average, and that's and that's Dean Wade. And one of the issues is Dean Wade is not shooting. 
Um, and like he's he's just hesitant to pull the trigger. And what you really need is you need someone who, when they get the ball, they're ready to shoot because that's why Jetty is so helpful to the team, even though he's actually not a good shooter. It's because he's someone who works to get a shot and then gets a shot up because that really, you know, that really creates space. If you're doing things like that, if you're moving off ball, if you're, you know, making yourself known to the defense, um, which they just don't have anybody really doing that because there's no such thing as a stretch two or a stretch three. And that's, that's where it's like, even when Isaac Okora was hitting shots, it's like, if you know someone's just standing in the corner and you're a guard, you're, you can recover because you know where you know where he is at all times. You know you're never going to lose mm-hmm. Isaac, and that's why there was this, there was that little stretch in that Memphis game where he was moving off ball really well, where he was using his shooting to like you know all right, my defender kind of turned his back. I'm going to cut to the basket. You know that's the kind of stuff where you would like to see you know Isaac improve in, but it's also tough when you're asking to do that with Jared Allen and Evan Mobley out there. So it's just, it's just a lot of parts that don't really match. I think that's a big issue. The lack of off ball movement in terms of shooting, like even when Okoro was having his good, uh, good streak there where he's shooting like 45 or 50%, he's basically just spotting up in the corner. But I think, I don't remember the number. I think it's like less than five of his three pointers have been above the break. It's like any of the Cavs outside of Garland and Mitchell, and then Jetty, when he's on the court, they're basically just spot up guys. They're not really able to move around without the ball. They're, you're not going to run a, a play for them to get a three-point shot. And that makes it really difficult, especially when, like, if you're going to run a play for Garland or Mitchell, one of them is initiating the play. And then it, it's just their options on offense are so limited. And I think this is one area where JB is doing his damn best. But it's just like, what do you want him to do? You know, and the Boston game's a good example. I was uh, at times frustrated with the the offense last night. I think they stagnated a lot, but also when Boston can just pack the paint and you have Marcus Smart roaming in the passing lane the entire night, what are Garland and Mitchell supposed to do in that situation? So I do want to focus on Okoro here and and flip this to Corey. Do you think Isaac Okoro can be a long-term starter or is this just something where they kind of have no other options right now? And so he's just, he's there. The starting lineup has been good with the minute. But do you think Okoro is a long-term fit with those starters? I think that Boston game, like, I, I hate to overreact to, like, what just happened last night. And that's going to determine my opinion of this team. But I was honestly probably the most frustrated I've been with a Cavs game in a while watching that Boston game. I mean, we played well three out of four quarters defensively, but I was very upset with the offense the entire time. I think I was – I think I said on Twitter that – I was like probably one of the few people who didn't enjoy the Donovan Mitchell point explosion because it just felt like the Cavs offense for 75% of it was Mitchell and the Michettes where it's just Donovan Mitchell doing his thing. Everyone else kind of is standing around. It's like real. It's like, Oh great. We're having the player who just tweaked his groin having to be our entire offense for the, like for the rest of the game until Darius got hot late in the fourth as well. But um, Isaac Okoro, I feel like, is a great player in the sense that he's useful to every team he'll be on. I think he'll be useful to the Cavs. I don't know if I want him necessarily being our three for the future. I would rather him come on, come out of the, like from the bench because offensively he either has it or he doesn't defensively. He always has it. So that will always bring value, but this Cavs team can't with the way Evan Mobley shot is right now. Can't basically operate with two and a half non-shooters with we don't know which version of a Coro you're going to get. And playoff o- offense just looks real bleak for the Cavs right now, if I'm being honest. If you have two half-decent perimeter defenders, you can stagnate this Cavs offense so much because they're the only two, Dar- Garland and Mitchell, are the only two willing volume three-point shooters. And it still feels like at sometimes that Darius doesn't necessarily want to take as many threes as I think he needs to. And... I just like our break glass in case of emergency options for three pointers is resurrecting the Dylan Windler corpse, hoping Danny Green's legs are working or uh, hoping that Dean Wade decides to shoot three pointers, which he was last year. He was at points this year, but ever since the injury, Dean Wade's confidence, I feel like has just gone down the shitter. 
and we just don't know where it's going at this point. I, I have never felt worse about the Cavs options offensively outside of like the starting lineup. And even with like, I, I'm not saying I, I don't count Jarrett in the offense because Jarrett does his work when the offense is flowing. And when the offense is stagnating, Jarrett, like there's nothing you can really expect of Jared Allen to do. It's not like you're telling Jared to go to the elbow and just start going like KG pull-ups. That's never been in his repertoire at all. But long story short, again, I see I feel like I'm on this roll right now. But Isaac Okoro, I, I I love him to death. I think he's a great player. I just I think it's safe to say that he can't if this team needs to have a semi-decent offense to complement its above average defense, then they need three shooters on the floor at all times. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm with you there. Uh, so since January, Okoro has been shooting 45% from the three-point line, but over his last nine games, that's down to 30%. And against Boston, he was over three. And I think you really saw how that affects the Cavs offense when they are playing with, uh, you know, on any given night, it's two and a half non-shooters. Last night, it was very much three non-shooters. And that basically makes Jared Allen just irrelevant in the offense. A lot of people were upset with him last night because of his lack of offense production. I think some of that was him maybe just not being ready for the moment. It, it didn't seem like it was his night, but it's also just really tough for him to get going when the offense isn't rolling because he's not a guy who's going to create for himself. He's a guy who's going to take advantage when he's set up for an advantage. So that's an area where when you have a core in the starting lineup and he's not shooting well, it really, really hurts the rest of the team. Uh, Jackson, how do you feel about a long-term fit? Uh, I'm not like I'm not as down on Okoro long-term as I feel like I am about a short-term just because I think Isaac can expand his game. He's still really young and he's being asked to play a role that he's never really played before. So I'm okay with giving him some leeway. Uh, I don't know if he's like the long-term starting three. Um, One of the things that really good teams have is they have the ability to play a lot of different styles and I think that's where Isaac Okoro could be really helpful in the um, future because I think his best I think he's best when he's guarding down so when he's guarding like a one or a two I think he's really disruptive whereas like I wouldn't be like Isaac go guard Jason Tatum and like shut him down you know so I think that's I think he gives you a lot of options and and I could see in two in like two years you are in a playoff situation where it's like, Hey, Isaac makes a lot of sense here. Or even like Isaac makes sense. If you're playing the Sixers, like somebody who can guard James Harden, you know, but I don't think he makes sense long-term and maybe all matchups unless he improves, but it's just like one of the things with Kobe is that Kobe has put together four really good players who fit really well together, which is the hardest thing to do. Like the, like the Cavs have been, great when all four guys have been on the floor they've been a plus 7.1 um net net rating during the 89th percentile for four-man groups like they are killing it together and that's with pieces that don't really fit so that's really encouraging but it's also at the same time kind of really frustrating like that's why this year is so frustrating because you could see how well these four guys fit and then you also see how poorly everyone else fits around them so that's a long way of saying, I think Isaac, I'm not out on Isaac long-term. It's just, it's a rough fit. And a game like what he had against the Celtics is kind of what I would expect when he's playing other playoff-like teams that the Cavs are either slightly worse than or around the same skill-wise. The hardest yeah. hill I feel like Okoro's had to climb is that he doesn't have a great handle, which doesn't allow him to create separation mm-hmm. off the dribble. And then he also doesn't have a consistent jumper. So the best way he really gets to get his own is either he is on fire from the corners or he he's always been a really good transition player. And he still is that today. But when it feels like the Cavs offense now is so stagnated that even in transition, it feels like if it's not in Garland or uh, Mitchell's hands, then you necessarily, outside of that Ricky Rubio outlet pass, which was fantastic to watch yesterday, it feels like at times that even their transition offense now is pretty stagnant. And that's just really unfortunate for Isaac because that's where he really, I feel like, gets his confidence going. Whenever you see Isaac's best games, I feel like it comes starting off of a really good transition game. And the weirdest part that you brought up about Okoro, too, that's interesting 
is that even though defensively he does really well against one and twos, offensively he actually does better against threes at, for his matchups than twos. When I was doing my article on him for uh, Fear of the Sword, I was looking at his cleaning the glass numbers, and the Cavs do so much better with him at the three versus the two offensively, which I thought was pretty pretty interesting because he's a much shorter three than most, and he's a much taller two than most as well. So it's just it only adds to the conundrum of Isaac Okoro at this point. You don't, you always just feel like there's so much give and take with him offensively. You just hope to find something that blends it all together. Yeah. And one of the things that you um, brought up how the Cavs were able to, who were like stag where I'm stagnating on the offense against the Celtics. And that's a team that switches everything. And that really slows the Cavs down. Um, when the Cavs were able to beat the Celtics earlier, in this season, they were just killing those mismatches. Like Jared Allen had a good game. They were able to get him a, a mismatch and then have him go to work from there. Uh, and that really wasn't happening. I mean, Donovan Mitchell was abusing mismatches. But, you know, other than that, they just weren't able to use their size to their advantage. And that's what we've seen Evan Mobley do a good job. Um, what game was that? That was the, the Denver game where he was just getting like – they would they would get a switch and he was just going to, he was just cooking people. Um, and he wasn't able to do that against Boston. Boston's a much better defense. Um, but that's, that's how you're going to have to beat those teams. And those are the hardest teams for Isaac to play against because, you know, a team that switches just stagnates everything. Isaac needs the offense flowing. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's not too surprising, but it is disappointing. And correct me if I'm wrong, if in those Celtics games, wasn't Rob Williams also injured at the time? I mean, that's a huge defensive piece to throw into it, too. I mean, he's the heart of the – it's like him and Marcus Smart, like, co-share the heart of the Celtics defense. I, I feel like Marcus gets all the acclaim because, you know, he's very bashful personality and whatnot. He's very vocal. But Rob Williams was so integral to that team last year that – putting him back in versus playing the whatever players they wanted to throw. I think when I, I went to that Celtics game where Levert and um, Donovan each scored 40, and I think they were starting Noah Vonley serious minutes at the time. So any upgrade over Noah Vonley will be sure to be harder on the life of Allen. They, they were given a lot of cornet minutes as well. He was doing his, mm -hmm. doing his eclipse. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah, that that Marcus Smart defense defensive player of the year. That's <laughs> I just he's like he just it's so hard for like a guard. I think guards don't affect defenses the same way that like a good big does. So mm -hmm. I don't I just like I just don't understand. Wait until Brooke Lopez it. gets his award. I know. <laughs> Evan Mobley is just if like if you look at it like, kills me that he's not yeah, if you look at in the if, conversation if you, if you look at like the ESPN real plus minus he's like killing everyone else in defensive real plus mm. minus and that's that's with the Cavs have like the absolute worst splits in three point shooting defense with him on the floor like I don't think it's anything that's like mm. his fault it's just like when he's on the floor opponents are shooting forty percent and when he's off they're shooting like twenty nine percent or something stupid like that. So he's just getting all these wrong, you know, he's just falling on the wrong end of all these like on off numbers, but he's been so good and just so much more valuable than a guard. Like Jaron Jackson Jr. can disrupt the defense. Marcus mm -hmm. Smart can help a defense. He's a really good defender. It's just, you can only do so much at like six, whatever he is anyways. Sorry. Yeah. That, that one surprised <laughs> me. <laughs> uh, I'm glad you brought up Robert Williams. Cause I actually think, we're going to talk about Evan Mobley's offense. He has always struggled his most when he's playing against other bigs that can match his size and athleticism. Like Robert Williams is like a nightmare matchup for him just because he's just as big as Mobley. He's stronger than him and he can move as quickly and he can jump as high as most importantly. When Mobley has his big games, it's against like Zubak and Brook Lopez or Jokic and the Nuggets where it's like he can just take them by surprise with how quickly he gets off his feet. And he's kind of he just has them at his will when he catches it at the elbow. He can get anything he wants. When he goes up against uh, you know, Robert Williams or even in situations where Giannis is on him, that's where bam. he really has his bam. Yeah, uh, against the Raptors, he struggles because they just have so much length and so many athletic guys. So that is one area where I think 
uh, the Cavs, if they run into a team that can put someone like that on Mobley, it's going to be really difficult for them. And I do want to talk about, because I think one issue that the Cavs have right now, and maybe a potential solution to what's been going wrong, is it could help them a lot if Mitchell and Garland maybe don't, specifically Mitchell, relaxes a little early in games where he's kind of going hero mode right away and he's forcing his own shot and maybe slowing down and trying to get the ball into Mobley or Allen could help them. What do you guys think about that? Do you think the bigs are being kind of forgotten about specifically at the end of games where, you know, Mobley sometimes just gets frozen out of the offense while the two guards are trying to put everything on their back. I'll let Jackson go first. Oh, (laughs) uh, I, I mean, I don't think, when the game gets gets tight late, it, it becomes really a create in the half court situation where you're not really running a whole lot of offense like you are in the beginning of games and stuff like that. And I, I, it's just hard for, it's just hard for someone like Mobley to be really involved offensively when it gets to be that slow. Um, so I think that's just kind of how basketball works. So I wouldn't, I'm not like too concerned about that. I think Mobley's done well when he has been called upon. He had like, he had the, he had the game winner against the um, Suns. He's had a couple big shots late in games, but I don't think like, I don't think the answer to the Cavs offense in the fourth quarter is like, Hey, let's get, let's make sure Evan Mobley gets the ball as much as possible because I'd rather have Donovan Mitchell with the ball in his hands. And if he's able to find an opening for someone else, then you live with that, but you'd rather him, you know, you'd rather die with him than try to, you know, get it to Evan Mobley or, or whatever. So that's kind of where I am. But it's it's just it's just always going to be tough when you are running two bigs at the same time um, in that kind of a setting. So that's kind of where I'm a, like a little concerned long term with the fit of the four together. If they get into like the Eastern Conference finals would like would it be, would they be better served with Jared Allen on the bench or you know it's hard to predict like future lineups or and stuff but it's just those are the questions that I have long term about this team uh right now they don't really matter because you're not putting in anyone into the game that's better than Jared Allen or Evan Mobley um you know like you're not running Karis Levert at the four and expecting things to be better so you know that's that's kind of where I'm I don't I may have completely lost the original question, but Corey, if you have any, if you have any thoughts on anything. No, I just feel like um, it's an interesting point about Donovan Mitchell. I like, cause you kind of think, I feel like basketball players over time, their mindset becomes pretty habitual in terms of like from their career, the further in the NBA you get, the more your role is cemented. And I feel like Donovan Mitchell at times feels like he's on that Utah jazz team of last year where he just is like, all right, well, it's just going to be like a Harden esque style where I'm at the center of the Cavs universe right now. And he just feels like he needs to get going in order for the team to feel like it's getting off on the right foot. Not saying he does it like intentionally. I feel like a lot of it's like a subconscious type thing. Not saying I'm like a psychiatrist for Donovan Mitchell or anything, but the dude was playing with Rudy Gobert, who was probably one of the least useful offensive bigs you could have asked for at times besides being a good screen setter for Mitchell to just throw down ferocious dunks. And he has two uh, centers while Allen's not like the most offensive oriented center of all time. I would like to think he has more touch to it and flow to his game as like a connective tissue type big as well than Rudy Gobert would ever have. And I don't think that it needs to be that the Cavs offense needs to run through the two of like the two bigs at the end of games. But I feel like it's just natural as a center to like just or like a big guy in general who mostly gets his points from around the rim to be like if i'm not getting touches early it's gonna be a lot harder for me to want to set you picks when i know this is only just gonna happen for you to just play hero ball at times with the possessions and that's something that i feel like was really good about the team last year with darius like darius never really had that mindset he was like the opposite of hero ball like he really hated the idea that he had to be the lifeblood of the Cavs offense last year, which was a detriment to the team, but also it's what had the team having such good chemistry as it did because he was such an unselfish player. And I feel like Donovan shows flashes of kind of being that unselfish player, but we also see a lot of times too where he puts his head down when he needs to, sometimes unnecessarily, most times very necessarily as in that Boston game. But 
it, it just is like a double-edged sword when you run those two bigs at the same time. No other team does it, so it staggers teams offensively, but defensively is where it just helps. It, it's the Cavs' backbone. So, like, if you removed it, the Cavs would be an infinitely worse team, in my opinion. Yeah, one thing I want to say real quick, like one of the problems with the Celtics game is that Al Horford made their defense, like made having another big out there just completely useless. Um, you know, the big's natural tendency is to just go back to the paint and, you know, try to recover and they just weren't recovering. We saw that when they played the Bucks sometimes when Brooke Lopez was just cooking them. They had a, oh they had, well, they had one game where uh, Bobby Portis had like five threes in the six first quarter. Yeah. There yeah. we go. Yeah. So it's, it's just tough when you get, when you get in these high level, high level matchups, which is what we're talking about now with the Cavs, because they are that good of a team. So like, it's not like, you know, it's a good thing that they're in this conversation, but it just kind of brings into question some of those things and whether or not, you know, just how it's going to be long-term because like their best, like I'm not saying get rid of Jared Allen at, at all. I don't want Tony yelling at me. Um, <laughs> so like, and, but they just have to find ways to make it work just a little bit better than what it is. And so that's one of the things that I'm super interested about seeing in a series. So even if they do get to the second round and just get absolutely smoked, like how are, how are they handling that? How are they like, is Brooke Lopez going to, are they just going to say, Hey, if Brooke Lopez hits, you know, 10 threes a game over, you know, seven games or whatever, we'll just lose that way. Or are they going to try to change what they do? So that's, something that I'm interested in and something that, you know, could be an issue long-term and it could not be an issue long-term. Like we said earlier, we thought that, you know, Tony thought that, I don't want to say that I thought that, but Tony thought that like Donovan Mitchell would be an issue on defense, you know, like a question mark coming into this year. And it really hasn't because Evan Mobley and Jared Allen have been so good. Mm. So maybe, maybe in the playoffs, they find a way to handle that a little better. Um, Yeah. And uh, to that point, uh, Brooke Lopez had the game where he let us up from deep. Julius Randle has let us up from deep. Al Horford, Bobby Portis. There's definitely a trend, and I do think much of that – we've talked about this before in the, in the podcast. Much of that is just the Cavs' game plan of wanting to protect the paint at all costs and maybe overhelping, and it's just generally how they play. They will they would rather have Brooke Lopez shoot a three than anyone get an attempt in the paint which I think is something they could adjust a little bit. I think they can loosen that grip, but it's also something that I want to flip this over talking about the bench and talking about everyone's favorite former Cav, Kevin Love, because when Kevin Love lets someone shoot a three-pointer, Twitter just explodes. Like he's the worst defender in the world, but Evan Mobley and Jared Allen, both incredible defenders teams get three point shots against them too. It's just how the NBA works. The teams are going to drive and kick and the big men are usually the ones who end up giving up the three point shot. So in Kevin Love's defense, and as we're talking about whether or not, you know, Mobley and Allen can work offensively, sometimes I'll take some Kevin Love minutes where maybe he's given up three-pointers that he shouldn't have, but he can also come down the other court and be a threat to shoot himself. Even when he's not making shots, when we talk about Dean Wade, Karis LeVert, these other guys, teams are going to defend Kevin Love, or they would have defended Kevin Love when he was here, and it would have just been nice to have someone who could shoot the three-pointer and space the floor. Cavs currently don't have that on the bench, and so – bringing the conversation here to focus on the bench. Who do you guys think is going to be, if, if anyone is going to do it, <laughs> is it Dean Wade? Are, are we putting our faith in Dean Wade? That's what it felt like at the deadline that everyone was like, all right, Dean Wade, you got to be that guy now. And, and right now he has been very far from being that guy. How are you? How are you two feeling about Dean Wade? Corey, you go, you go because I would just, <laughs> take it in some weird direction and end up talking about, you know, I don't know, Ricky, Ricky Rubio or something. It's pretty fitting that I'm uh, back on with Tony while I asked this question, because Tony was victim to my Kevin Love tirade on uh, our podcast. I just it dumbfounded me that we had to let him go because putting our eggs in the Dean Wayne basket at the time when he did not look good. There was either he had like some of the best scrimmages that the Cavs coaches have seen at practice or something. There has to be some deal where Kevin Love did something to JV behind his back that we just don't know about because 
there was no outside thought that for any fans were like, you know, the bench has been playing pretty well. We could probably sacrifice a volume three-point shooter and we won't be harmed whatsoever. And then they're like, oh, I can tell you guys are kind of upset about that Kevin Love thing. Here's Danny Green. And we're like, oh, who's Kevin Love? I don't even remember him anymore. Whatever, it's fine. And then we all watch Danny Green go out on his first game and we're like, is this like some kind of joke? Like he he's walking around. I think so I don't I think it was Tony, I'm pretty sure, tweeted that he looked like he was running in like the shallow end of the pool or yeah. something. Yeah, and I don't I know. Just... Did Danny Green always run like he was bow legged? Is that something I missed <laughs> or is this new? Because I swear he did not run like that before. Ever since like that first game, I'm I've never watched a player run for more than like in my life than I've watched Danny Green. I don't even watch the game. I'm watching Danny Green's legs and I'm like, is there like any lifeblood left in these legs right now? Or are we just like dragging him off the floor? Having him be like, oh man, you just got to make one three and all of our mistakes will be forgotten, Danny. And he had that one four point play where I was like, you know, maybe this whole like Danny Green thing might work out. <laughs> it just never seems to like turn out that way. I, I for the life of me, I've given up like thinking that some Cavs bench player is going to like turn it around. I, I I think I would have the most faith in Karis Levert just because I'm not, there's no one out there who I would, if you told me Karis Levert is going to go out and shoot 18 shots like in his next game, I would not be surprised. But if you told me Dean Wade shot more than four, I'd be very surprised. So if I'm expecting someone to go out volume shooting, it's, it's gotta be Karis unless Dylan Windler gets his John B line mentality back and <laughs> summer league style <laughs> starts hucking it all over the floor. Yeah. Before Jackson crashes the Karis Levert party, I would just like to say, is, is Karis Levert going to come out and be a volume scorer in the playoffs? Probably not more no. than likely not. But I do think if anyone on the bench is going to have like a 16 point explosion in the playoffs, it's probably Karis Levert. Uh, and then I'll, I'll let Jackson say what he wants about Windler did, and Levert here. <laughs> did him Jetty get cut? What happened to Jetty? Yeah, he can't. Oh, I, he I'm he sorry. Can't have a I just point explosion. Come on now. I um, I love Jetty as much as the next guy. JB doesn't love yeah. him as much as any Cavs fan does. <laughs> That's where I am. I, whenever I think about the Cavs rotation, I'm like, I could bring Jetty into the conversation, but is JB gonna even ha- like? Is that even something he's considering? I don't know. So, sure, what? Jetty, I'd be happy to have a Jetty explosion in the playoffs. I will take Jetty over any bench option. He is my favorite bench player when he plays. He just never mm-hmm. gets to. He has a good game, and JB's like, "That was cool. Let's never do that again." And then he just chucks it off. One thing I will say about Jetty is he hasn't looked like himself recently. Uh, he missed a couple games with some back issues. So I don't know if that's actually like a bigger factor in things or not. It's always tough speculating about that. So because like even even against the Celtics, he came out and he just looked kind of like not like Jetty. Like he didn't look spry. And that's feel like that's one of the things that like you see Jetty and he's just bouncing around. So I don't know if that's like a bigger issue than what we know it is. But anyways, um, Karis LeVert, back to what's important. Um, I'm actually... So, like, I'm yes, Karis Levert is the one who we all have the most faith in offensively from the bench. That doesn't really mean anything because everyone, there's no reason to have any faith in any of them. Um, but Karis, one thing Karis does is Karis has the ability to really win a one on one. And if you look at teams that switch a lot, like if you're looking at like Boston or like Milwaukee, you need guys who can beat one on one, uh, their defender one on one, and Karis Levert can do that. So, uh, we saw that in the play in the play in last year. Karis Levert was very helpful and useful. So I'm like, you know, so I do want to say that I do think Karis Levert could be helpful. Um, now back to Dean Wade real quick. Uh, one of the problems with Dean Wade is he just doesn't shoot. Uh, if you look at his usage, he's in the second percentile for usage. Um, that just means he's just not getting up any shots on um, offense and you just you need you need somebody in that position to do something and he just hasn't been able to for whatever reason yeah i think the bench is just uh when we talk about what's going to end up ending the calf season it's more than likely going to be the, a lack of bench production on the year they rank 28th in bench points per game and oh, since january they're 29th of course, some of that is the pace they play at and the, the bench. JB has been on an eight-man rotation for a while here, but 
I think it's still fair to bring that up because it's a pretty clear indicator of how much they've struggled at times. Uh, Dean Wade, I was a big Dean Wade believer entering the season. I thought he would be the most likely pick to be in the starting lineup. Now I'm starting to wonder if the clock is ticking for him at the NBA level, or at least with the Cavs, because if you're not going to shoot the ball, he's a good defender, but they they need him to shoot the ball. That's what he's on the floor for. Uh, and if he's not going to do it, it just gets tough to justify playing him. Uh, you talk about Jetty Osman. Uh, maybe the injuries are playing a role in it. I do think JB has been hesitant to put him on the floor. So whether or not, even if he's healthy, will he be in the rotation? I don't know. I think if Dean Wade isn't going to be able to earn those minutes, hopefully Jetty will be the guy to, to end up playing those minutes. Lamar Stevens is an extremely unlikely guy at this point who's going to crack the rotation. I think he's pretty much just a specialist guy who they bring in. Same with Neto, where it's like, we need some toughness. We need someone to to get this game a little dirty and rough him up. That's when you're going to put Stevens and Neto in. We talked about Danny Green. I have not been encouraged by the way he's moving. Maybe he'll get his legs under him, but the odds of him playing any huge role on the bench, at least this season, I don't know. Maybe he just needs some time to get his legs under him. Like I said, and he could be a factor in the future, but the bench is looking a little scary there. Uh, Dylan Windler, the time that the window for him to get any minutes is pretty much closed. Uh, and one guy who I'm starting to be a little concerned about as well as Ricky Rubio. Uh, I think he, at the very least, his movement looks fine. He's definitely not on the same level as Danny Green, where I'm like, wow, that guy cannot even run up the court anymore. Rubio at least looks like he's still an NBA basketball player. Um, but since the Memphis game, where he kind of had I forget exactly how many points he had, but he had a little bit of an explosion there in the second half where he was just rolling and it felt like last year, Ricky Rubio. Since then, he's averaging just five points on 31% shooting from the floor and 22% shooting from the three-point line. He's never been much of a three-point shooter, but last year was his best shooting season, uh, career high and three-pointers made. He shot 34%, which wasn't that's below average, but he took some difficult shots, specifically shots off the dribble where if Ricky Rubio could even give you that like this season, that would have helped this Cavs bench immensely, but it's just not there right now. And I'm starting to get concerned if it's going to come back at all, or if he is going to be much of an offensive threat. And at that point, it gets really tough when you have Rubio and Levert as the two guys who ideally would have been your first two guys off the bench. Now it's like, they're both basically giving you the same thing to, you know, varying degrees and so, yeah, the bench is just getting a little concerning to me, uh, more than concerning. <laughs> yeah. Um, one thing I would say about Dean Wade, uh, I think we can give Dean Wade a little bit of a pass or at least be a little optimistic going in, into the future. Uh, he played this one preseason game against the Sixers and he came out and was shooting like, he shot like six of the Cavs' first like eight shots or something like that. So I think they, he, he I think he knows he needs to shoot more. And I think the coaching staff knows it's just when you get hurt really early in the season, it just kind of derails all of that momentum that, that you were building up to. And even before his latest injury, he wasn't playing like this. So like, I'm kind of, I kind of think just him being fully healthy for a um, full training camp and, beginning of the season would really help him. So I'm not out on him entirely, but yeah, you, you just can't really like rely on someone like that. And that's something that you see in his minutes. Like JB is not, he's quick to pull him when he's not doing anything. So I uh, just wanted to throw that, in, throw that in there real quick. Yeah. It definitely has to be hard for Dean Wade probably had the worst time to come back off of injury. Like this was worst case scenario for expectations. Cause Dean goes from being like this nice complimentary player where we're like, Oh, nice. We're getting some good minutes out of this undrafted guy. This is awesome. Like the Lamar Stevens where we're like, Oh man, this is really awesome. And then uh, now, now it's suddenly like, Oh, by the way, Dean, you're kind of like everything we need for offense. So hopefully you come back to hundred percent right off of injury. Thanks. <laughs> Have a good all-star break. And he's just like, Oh, well, what? And now we're just seeing like a player who not like if this was with a normal bench in the NBA and Dean Wade was looking like this. No one would be grabbing their pitchforks and saying like, this is it. Dean Wade sucks. It's over. Why did we give this guy a contract extension? If we're just going to have him not shoot. I think, if, even if like he has a horrible end to this year where it just kind of looks like this throughout the rest of the time, I probably won't be out. Like Jackson said, I would probably 
wait until next season of it. Then if he looks like this next season, it's kind of like a, oh shit. Like luckily the Dean Wade contract is nothing like that is going to sink us for seasons to come. It's a very low risk, high reward kind of contract. And it's a player that we're probably going to need down the road. I totally forgot in the beginning of the season. I also was on the Dean Wade for the starting three train and my God, how times have changed. <laughs> yeah. I was on, unfortunately, I was on the carousel vert starting train. So, um, Hey, there you go. Kind of, <laughs> I don't know. I, the lineup still is better when, when um, he's out there. So I, you know, as much as I dislike care, like as much as I don't, really love Karis Levert, and I really don't like the contract he's going to get this year um, mm-hmm. at, in the um, offseason because that's that's going to be a nightmare. Um, <laughs> well, because, like, the Cavs have to sign him, and, like, his agent... Yeah, they're kind of screwed. It's an asset game. You can't let the asset go. Right. It's like <laughs> the J.R. Smith situation, but J.R. Smith fit with the team. Um, and was... Hey, less soup is thrown with Karis Levert. It's true. So far... Real team gelling guy. He doesn't throw soup, so he's a good guy. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. So that that's just gonna not be good. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Seems like a lot of de-stressing here for Jackson. <laughs> Karis Levert, I can tell, was one of Jackson's favorite players. I'm surprised you don't have a little poster behind you signed from Karis. <laughs> yeah, that's in the um, other um, room over there. <laughs> I just don't like to flaunt it on camera. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Oh, God. The Cavs offense is so bad. It's just so stressing. I've never seen a team so talented. You look at the record and you're like, oh, this. Like, I feel like casual fans who don't watch the Cavs must turn it on. And they're like, this team's of like a lot of games over 500, right? Like, what am I missing here? <laughs> yeah. And, they're and they they're one be, of those rare. Go ahead. Sorry. And they should be better. Like, they statistically, yeah. There's a right. ton of points left on the floor. Are they mm. less? They're like second in. Um, third in that in that rating they should have four more wins than they currently have which that i think that kind of is like like somebody with their with their uh, point differential should have four more wins than what they have uh, and that kind of comes to like some of the three-point shooting luck they've had some weird like losses in the last couple minutes so things like that are happening but it's like this is a really good team so that's why like we are justified in being a little frustrated because they are so good and they could be even like so much better. Yeah. It's a weird line to be a Cavs fan because you don't want to seem like you're greedy from last season where this team clawed its way to a play in game after being like a really good team for half the year, probably one of the best teams in the East. And then suddenly the injury bug hits and all the expectations go down and you have to just compensate with being like, well, we were in the play in last year. So that was cool. And now it's like, you don't want to be like, Oh man, we should be like in the Eastern conference finals. And this offense is stagnant and it sucks. And JB's terrible. And we should like at the beginning of the season, everyone was like, Oh man, it'd be really cool if we made it to like pass the first round. And now suddenly mm-hmm. if we don't make it to the Easter conference finals, we suck. And this season was a waste <laughs> and we're contending now, apparently for the finals. Right. Well, it's like, if you look at their like statistical profile, it's like, if you're top five in net rating and top 10 in offense and defense, that's a team that you expect to be at least one of the final four teams. And it's like, you don't expect the Cavs to be that because they don't really they're doing that on the back of their four best players, but they don't have guys that fit around them. So you just kind of know that in those matchups, it's just not going to bear out like that. So that's where it's, that's where it's the most frustrating where it's like, this team is so good. And that's where it's exciting for the future is this seems really good. And like, I think, I don't think it's as hard to get pieces that fit around these guys as a lot of people on Cavs Twitter think, because it's like, this team has very obvious flaws. Like you watch it for two seconds. You're like, yeah, this team just needs a shooter. Like get this, get them a shooter, two shooters. This team is like ready to go. Like if you had like last year's Danny green before the injury, you're like, this is a team that could go really far. So I don't think they're like that far away, but it's just like this year. That's why it's so frustrating as you, as you were saying. Mm. Yeah. I think it, Part of the thing that makes it so confusing for anyone who maybe doesn't watch the Cavs every night, but they occasionally check in and they see the numbers, they see how good they are with the net rating, plus minus, just about every metric, the Cavs are killing it. But then you watch some games, you're like, wow, this team 
they need a shooter. Like, how are they going to do anything without a shooter? I think the reason those numbers are so good is because when the Cavs are rolling, when they are getting any sort of shooting, whether it's just from Garland and Mitchell, or if the other guys are stepping up and that offense is rolling, they kill teams. Like they absolutely beat the brakes off of teams when things are going good in Cleveland. But on the flip side, and this is, you know, a sign of how good they are too, even when they're not shooting well, they really don't get blown out of games. They manage to scrap and make it a game. But with those losses are so frustrating because you know, like, man, if they were just knocking down open shots or making shooting better than six for 30 from the three point line, if they even attempt 30 in a game, it's like they can beat any team. Not only can they beat any team, but they can destroy any team. And so it's so frustrating watching that and knowing it's so obvious what they need. I think part of that maybe makes it more difficult for them to get it in, in terms of like the trade deadline. Because unless, you know, talking about Levert, unless you're getting someone if you're the team trading for Levert like unless you really need him you're not just going to hand over a shooter to the team that needs one shooter to destroy the rest of the league you know like unless Levert's really going to help you you're not making that trade so it gets difficult but I I agree with Jackson that I don't think the path to improving this roster is as difficult as some people think it is because and I mentioned this before when we talked about the trade deadline those guys are available every year how many times has Jay Crowder been traded at the deadline like these, these shooters, these three and D guys, they're always going to be available. And it's just a matter of going out there and managing to get one and hoping that it works in your favor. It's just kind of how the NBA works at this point. But, uh, you know, one last thing that I want to bring up and I want to give Jackson the opportunity as our G league specialist, uh, the Cavaliers have signed Sam Merrill to a 10 day contract. He is a potential shooter, great off ball movement from the article on fear of the sword that i read today from you i also watched max video on his youtube channel he strikes me as the type of guy who can move off ball and give the Cavs what they need but i'm interested to hear what jackson has to say about sam merrill okay uh i first want to preface this with saying that uh chris fedor uh wrote about this briefly today and said that uh he's one of uh, several options the Cavs are looking at and they so they could potentially give a 10 contract to somebody else so I'm saying that to just kind of keep my expectations in check because um, he is the exact player that I think this team needs. So what, so like Sam Merrill, he's six, four. Uh, he's not the most athletic guy in the gym, um, but he can really shoot it. And what he does that I am so impressed with is his off ball movement. He's someone who is really comfortable moving off ball. He's someone He's a really, he's really good at relocating. This is one of the things that I, I don't want to turn this into, this is why I don't like Dylan Windler uh, segment, but one of the things that uh, Dylan Windler struggles with, and I think it's because he, because of when he, like one of the things Dylan Windler struggles with is he doesn't move well off ball as a shooter. He doesn't try to relocate. He doesn't, he's not comfortable coming off of screens. And one of the reasons why is because he went to a small college and played on ball so he's never really played that role and his time with the cast has been very uh not lucky for him uh with um, injuries and stuff like that so he just never really got to develop in that way that sam has gotten to develop where sam is someone who he's he's a really good screener he comes off of screens he's a movement shooter he's not afraid to take shots he's shooting 8.23s a game. You only get 8.23s a game if you are someone who if you are a big who can space the floor, you can get that many threes. If you're a, like a point guard who takes a bunch of off the dribble threes like Donovan Mitchell, you can get a bunch of threes like that, but if you're someone who can't really dribble and you're not a big, you're only getting those threes if you're moving off ball and creating those threes yourself. And that's what Sam Merrill can do and that's what he does really well. So 43.2% on 8 0.23 a game is a really big number and what he does really well is he just his off ball activity and his movement really creates plays for everyone else um a couple nights ago the charge were down three with under a, a minute left to play uh sharif cooper had the ball at the top of the uh, key uh merrill comes off a screen Everyone stays with Merrill. Sharif Cooper just takes this guy off the dribble. Nobody helps layup. That those are the things that Sam Merrill provides that nobody else on the Cavs besides like Darius Garland or Donovan Mitchell can actually provide. So that's where it's like he's somebody who really fits with this team. I don't 
the questions are how well does he do everything else? Like, cause you know, he is in the G league. Um, you know, he's not, he is somebody who can dribble the ball. He's someone who can finish at the rim, but he's, those aren't things that he's great at. He's a really good team defender. He's always in the right spots, but he's not, you know, he's not somebody who's going to, he's not a lockdown defender. So there are obvious concerns and I wouldn't be surprised if he doesn't get a second 10 day contract or if he doesn't really get a whole lot of minutes because you know how JB, JB really values the defensive end of the floor and, you know, he values continuity. So, you know, those caveats aside, I think if he did get minutes, he could be really helpful. He just does all the things that the Cavs desperately need. Corey, do you want to talk about Sam Miller at all? Do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, what Jackson said, that was that was great stuff. <laughs> you know, my G League uh, charge. Yeah, he's the G uh, League specialist here. Yeah. It's like having uh, freaking Woj, but just for the, the Cleveland charge. Well, one of the things, so I pointed like in my Fear the Sword article, uh, one of the things that he's a really good screener, which he like one of the things that they do is they'll like set back screens for their bigs with him. So that really makes the defense like kind of make a decision. Like, do we switch on to like Mamadi with a guard or do we, you know, like, how do we handle this? And that's one of the things that like he can provide that nobody else can because he's a good screener and a good shooter. And he's, you know, he knows how to move off ball and he can hit shots on the move. So it's just like, there's so many little things that he does that he would be a really good fit. Cause you know, right now, the biggest problem with the Cavs role players, and I don't know if we touched on this enough, even though we've talked about the Cavs role players for 55 minutes, is that even though they're not like great players, they're just really bad fitting players. So I think Sam Merrill is not a better player than, you know, Ricky Rubio, Karis LeVert, Dean Wade. Like he's not a better player in a vacuum, but he's a better fitting player than all those guys. Um, So that's where it's like, maybe he can be helpful even if he's not, you know, that good. It's just, he does what they need and he does what they need very well. It's just questions elsewhere. Yeah, I agree with that. I'm always a fan of the underdog story. So I would love to see a guy sign a 10 day contract and make an impact. Uh, Not going to put my faith in it just because it's such a rare thing to happen. I will say that the Cavs have such a massive glaring weakness that it's like the perfect opportunity for someone like him to come in and make an impact. Uh, Like you said, we have a lot of good role players, but not many that fit. Even someone like Lamar Stevens in a different situation might be killing it somewhere as a role player, but here it's like he's buried because they just have so much defense and they, he's not a very good offensive player. So I would be, I really hope that Sam gets some minutes against the Pistons here coming up on Saturday. I hope the Cavs take care of business and they give the 10-day contract guy a chance to get in and show what he's made of because, again, it's extremely unlikely that with, what, 17 games remaining, he's going to crack the rotation by any means. But if we're thinking long-term, even if he manages to come in and earn a contract and stay with the team and build, we could have another Dean Wade on our hands, you know? So <laughs> I, I'm i hopeful the yeah, Cavs are in such a – position where they need shooting so bad that someone like him could come in and make an impact one thing i will say is that they are a very similarly structured team as the Cavs. they have sharif cooper is basically like darius garland and donovan mitchell in one person they have isaiah mobley who is very similar to evan mobley but on the g league level you know and they have mommy dia diakite so they run two big lineups they feature their big men an awful lot. They have a guard who is really dynamic off the dribble. So it's like, and they play the same sets and stuff like that. So it's like, he, like, I'm not concerned that he's going to come in and just kind of not know what he's doing. Cause that's kind of what you get with a lot of like 10 day guys and guys that are just coming in from outside your organization. Like he should come in and be able to hit the ground running. It's just obviously, you know, if he was somebody who teams thought could be a rotation NBA player, he wouldn't be in the G league, but maybe this is the chance that he needs. Cause he's, he was almost, he was the Kings last cut. He lost to Matthew Delvadova, which we're just going to say that's a Mike Brown. We're just going to say that's a Mike Brown problem. <laughs> Cause we don't have much know, Mike man. Brown loves Delhi. Delhi's a um, dog. Who doesn't love Delhi? I mean, come on. <laughs> well, I mean, we love Delhi, but he was, 
He was on the Bucks actual team when they won the championship. He was on Memphis last year before hurting his knee, which really derailed the season, obviously, because he was out the whole year. So he's somebody who teams believed in before. He's not like a career G leaguer. So it's, you know, he's, he like um, rehabbed, he came back. He's played really well and fit in really well. So it's like, I don't know. I'm, I'm really optimistic, but you know, it could be the start of something special. <laughs> I was optimistic about Danny Green too, and then like you just yeah, see Danny Green. Yeah. But, but that four point play though, well, he, <laughs> he tore his ACL in May, like mm. Ricky Rubio did in the end of December, and he it took him like 13, 14 months to come back. And so it's like I think Danny Green, you just he just came back way too early. So and you he looks like someone who came back way too early. Mm. So anyways. Well, that's a optimistic way to end it after a very pessimistic episode talking about the Cavs really their I won't say their only weakness, but by far their biggest weakness and the one if they manage to solve, I think they will solve it. They'll be a very scary team to play for the next however many years they manage to keep the core together. But uh this was a great first episode of the Junkyard Pod. Corey, thank you for coming on. Jackson, as always, it's a pleasure and uh go Cavs. I agree. Go Cavs.